Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is not here with me. In a change to the customary procedure, she's been felled by a bug, although we did manage to get some work out of her before she took to her bed. But wonderfully, breaking the fourth wall once again. You did this when I was sick, didn't you, Charlotte? You've emerged from the producer's cabin I don't know what do we call where you sit the gallery the nerve center what do we call it hello Charlotte Pardy <laughs> is what I'm trying to say hello yeah you're stuck with me again I seem to be the stand-in for sickness at the minute which is very fun actually are you sure it's fun or does it feel a bit like you know what am I super sub am I the Oli Gunnar Solskjaer of the podcasting world I don't mind it I think it's good fun I tell you just to let you in listeners uh Charlotte is normally the person who's just sending us messages going Guys, you are out of time. Stop talking. <laughs> and I'm sending back. I say, I'm sorry, I have another question. It's very interesting. So now you have control. You could just cut me off, Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, I can just stop talking and then that's the end of it. So, yeah. Yeah, real opportunity for you to exact all kinds of revenge. What have you been up to? Well, it's busy. It's always busy. A lot's going on. It's always busy at the TLS, isn't it? Because obviously we launched our new Turning Leaves podcast the other day which was very, very exciting. And it's an awesome, awesome listen. And if they haven't listened, well, you should probably do the plug. But if you haven't listened, listeners, then you should definitely listen and let us know what you think so we can make it better. When I listened back to it, our conversation with Margaret Drabble and Joe Swift about literature and gardens and growing up, they spoke so freely and so entertainingly and movingly. And it was just wonderful. I loved it. So obviously I'm biased, but I really loved it. Away from work, what have you been up to? Well, I am embarking on quite a extraordinary year. Well, I hope it'll be extraordinary. My mum, unfortunately, was diagnosed with breast cancer late last year. And obviously, I don't know if you have experience with anyone being diagnosed with cancer, but it's quite a naturally scary situation to find yourself in. Absolutely. So luckily, I just want to say she's medically doing very, very well. So, you know, things are looking very positive for her, which is great. But at the time, trying to sort of deal with the, you know, emotions and try and keep yourself in check, I decided to embark on a year of fundraising through this very tricky and difficult time. So we're going to be doing six fundraising events. We have three booked in. We're going to be doing the 5K Pretty Muddy. We're going to be running a 10K. And I am going to be doing a 100 kilometer walk with the charity Copperfield. So the other three we haven't booked in yet. So if anyone has any suggestions of what we could do, then please let me know. But yeah, that's what's taking up most of my time when I'm not working, really, is training for that, fundraising for that. Wow. I mean, really huge well done. And we're delighted that your your mum's doing well of course it's a scary time and it just rocks the, the whole family and just very anxious and stressful and intense period for you all and just what an amazing response Charlotte amazing effort from you well done and goodness listeners write in with what you think she should do it's international women's day or week 
if we're allowed a bit of mission creep. We know that you might be listening at some other point, but that is when we're recording. There's a couple of terrific pieces in the paper this week that reflect that, including Michelle Pridmore-Brown on a trio of books about parenthood, and one in particular goes into the tricky business of maternal instinct. I really enjoyed reading that. There's a terrifically interesting piece about surgeons by Wendy Moore that includes a review of a book about a female surgeon who trained in Liverpool in 1955. Her first dissection came as a huge shock to her because her father had bought her a book on the human body for Christmas, very encouragingly, but had glued the pages on reproduction together. So when she came to do her dissection involving a particular part of anatomy that was complete news to her, it's really hard to imagine that. I mean, Charlotte, you're a young woman and that those stories must seem unthinkable to you. Like you say, it really is unthinkable. And I don't want to move the subject on, but Alex, the Women's Prize for Fiction has been announced this week as well, hasn't it? Yes, the long list is always announced this week. It's 16 books. Really interesting. Some very sort of big hitters and previous winners on there. Maggie O'Farrell won not three years ago for her novel Hamnet. And she's long listed again with The Marriage Portrait. And Barbara Kingsolver won a little longer ago with Lacuna in 2010. Her novel Demon Copperhead, which is a, a sort of updating and resituating of David Copperfield to the Appalachian Mountains, is long listed. But some really interesting books by writers who, well, partly we're not very aware of them because many of them are debut novelists. So it's really a prize that's bringing us new voices. I'm delighted to see Louise Kennedy there for her book, Trespasses, which is just a wonderful set in 1975 in Belfast. It's a really wonderful wonderful novel so Charlotte picking out a book that I thought you might like I'm very pleased to see Laylene Paul's pod on the long list she wrote a book called The Bees which told the story of a young bee in an S I mean literally it was point of view of the bee Flora and this is told from the point of view of a dolphin do you think that might be so everybody needs a good book when they're embarking on something when you're doing your training you might listen to books, I suppose, as you go along. Do you think a book about a dolphin might be good? I think a book about a dolphin would be very good for me. And, you know, my brother loves bees, so I reckon the other uh, book would be really good for him as well. So you can't really forget it. It's called The Bees. Oh, well, yeah, I'll pass oh, it on. And next time I come beyond the fourth wall, although let's hope no one gets sick again, is I will have read that book and have a review for you. We'd like that. No pressure. I don't like to give homework, but I'm giving homework. There <laughs> we are. <laughs> now, coming up on this week's show, we are continuing with women getting into places that it's thought that they shouldn't be with a group biography of four women composers. And we'll also be looking at the world of Madagascan pirates. But first, if I asked you to name an opera or even any piece of classical music written by a woman, you might struggle, especially if I didn't count the last 20 years or so. And this would be understandable since there is very little, or rather there is little that we know about that has been celebrated or even performed. A book was published last week called Quartet, How Four Women Changed the Musical World by Leah Broad. And we have a wonderful review of it by Flora Wilson. So we're delighted that she's here with us today to talk us through it. Flora, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is a group biography, isn't it, of four women? Can I ask you a horrible question, which is to introduce us very briefly to all four of them? <laughs> this is the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. So we've got four women. The earliest is Ethel Smythe. She's born in 1858, bang in the middle of the 19th century. And the last of them died only in 2003, a woman called Doreen Carwithan. Between them, Rebecca Clark and Dorothy Howell, all four were composers. The latter three were all also important instrumentalists. Rebecca Clark was one of the 20th century's great viola players. Dorothy Hole was a really highly trained pianist. Doreen Carwithan was a, a really highly trained pianist as well and also a cellist. But all four have essentially receded from view with the partial exception of Ethel Smythe, who, as I imagine we'll talk about, was such a character that she has retained some kind of foothold in music history that the others could only dream of. And yet even she is someone whose music we simply don't know. Mm, yeah, yeah. Ethel Smythe is the most famous and she was also the most sort of remarkable, wasn't she? So she does tend to sort of dominate a little bit. 
She really does. I mean, I think she did in her lifetime. There's this wonderful quote that Leah Broad has where one of her friends only allowed her to visit once a fortnight because she said, one must be very well to enjoy you. (laughs) And I think, I mean, there are so many moments in this biography where Smythe is, I mean, larger than life doesn't really do her justice. She is a completely dominating character. But as I say in my piece, I mean, she is kind of irresistible as well. You know, she went hiking alone, armed with only a rucksack and a revolver. (laughs) And she knew all these incredibly important figures in the first half of the 20th century. She knew Emmeline Pankhurst. She fell in love with Virginia Woolf late in her life. Woolf called her the uncastrated cat and said that she looked so (laughs) angry. This kind of angry energy reminded her of a ptarmigan. My goodness, people really came up with their best lines when they they were talking about her, didn't they? They Clearly. really did. I mean, she just sounds fantastic. Yeah, she's just, she attracted one-liners, but she also turned them out herself. Yeah, she was a real, I mean, I hate to say this about a female person in history, but she was a complete handful in the way that plenty of historical personages evidently were. She came to the suffrage movement quite late, actually. She's someone who ended up really involved in the suffrage movement and even spent some time in prison conducting out of her cell window with a toothbrush, as you do if you're a very determined female composer of a certain age. But she came late to that movement, but within weeks, practically, she was writing to Emmeline Pankhurst herself, saying that no one could be a more profoundly convinced suffragist than I. You know, she kind of, she didn't do anything by halves. She really just went for it. And so she does particularly since she is chronologically the earliest of these four composers, she does cast a very long shadow over the book. And actually her work, I mean, that's the name that I knew the most out Mm. of the four of them. But as you said, one of her operas was performed at Glyndebourne last year, wasn't it? She's the best known in terms of just her work. I think so, yeah. And it's still only a small handful of works that are being performed. But over the past, I suppose, decade, generously, there's been a real new interest in among the major classical music institutions in this country and elsewhere in trying to program more music by composers who were women as well as men. And her music has proven that it's been a really integral part of that. So there are single recordings of a few of her operas, by no means all of them. And the Wreckers did indeed have this really high profile re-entry, if you like, opening the Glyndebourne Festival last year, which is about as high profile as you get in, in UK opera terms. And the kind of the rhetoric that critics were coming up with in response to that was really interesting because there was clearly an enormous groundswell of kind of goodwill. People really wanted to like this music, really wanted to find it interesting. And to a large extent, they did. But there were kind of 21st century traces of the same condescension that I'm afraid characterized her 19th and early 20th century reception as well. Mm. So there was, as I, I said in my piece, there was a real tendency to compare her music to other composers, male composers, who were actually writing after she was writing. You know, this assumption that they must have been the source of the kind of language she's using musically. But actually, she got there first. And it's that kind of intervention that I think Quartet stands to make a real difference, to make us reassess the kind of parade of great works that made up the 20th century in classical music history and to realise that actually we're missing some figures, some really important figures here and Smythe is definitely one of them. Mm. I wonder if I could ask you just as a sort of, I suppose just to kind of broaden out slightly when when you said that, that, you know, these programmers have been making this, as it was, concerted effort latterly to Mm. programme more women and to think about other figures in the industry and how people get access to all sorts of parts of the industry. It's a, a horrible question really, but why... Did it take them so long? I mean, we know why we have to ask this question, because it obviously has in so many arenas. But what were the barriers before? Was it a kind of condescension at a sort of institutional level? Was it a not knowing about these people? Was it was it something even more overt than that, I wonder? I think it's all of the above. I mean, these are these are clearly, this is the absolute nub of the issue, isn't it? Mm. It was a problem of institutionalization in some ways, particularly 
if you think about opera, opera is an incredibly expensive art form to produce. It was the, the Hollywood blockbuster machine of its day, in a sense, and it remains a very expensive art form, which means that it is a very small C conservative art form in certain respects. It's quite risk averse. And the big opera houses will always be wary of sinking a huge amount of investment into completely unknown names. And so someone like Smythe, but also other composers who perhaps are women and perhaps are less well-known names do end up being on the receiving end of that kind of wariness. On the other hand, it also goes much further back that these women, as Quartet makes so horribly clear, these women found it very difficult to get their works published. And if you can't get something published, then essentially you might as well give up on the the idea of more performances. I'm afraid there's another Ethel Smythe line here that she said brilliantly, a nun walled up alive in her convent would have a better chance of exercising influence than manuscripts in a cupboard. And, you know, mm. she hits the nail on the head. But it is also, it's a really important point that if you can't get your work published, then only you can advocate for it. And that's useless. And particularly in the 20th century, when we're talking about a time when, you know, radio broadcasts begin to be a really important way for getting music out there. But also you want orchestras around the world to be playing your music. You don't want to have to go and literally deliver a score to a conductor to have some hope that it's ever going to see the light of day. Mm. And it's clear that Broad was doing a lot of really effectively archaeological work to actually rediscover the scores, the manuscript scores of some of the music that she writes about in quartet. And that's what makes this such a heartbreaking read in some ways, that anyone who tries to tell you, ah, well, the thing is, there really weren't women who composed in the past because it wasn't acceptable, they couldn't access the training or whatever. It's essentially not true, as this book makes all too clear. There was plenty of music being written, but it wasn't being made publicly available. And it's now sitting quite literally in some cases in damp boxes going mouldy and that's a really kind of awful thought. If you were thinking of the equivalent in the world of literature it would be like well there's a wonderful novelist who can't get published so as you said you can't just go around and go I've written a brilliant novel everyone would be like I'm sure you have yeah. Well I was <laughs> wondering it was exactly that sort of equivalent in the literary world that I was wondering about I wondered if there was a sort of equivalent to the Brontes to George Eliot were there women who actually tried to get their music published, as it were, sort of anonymously under or pseudonymously? Yes, to some extent. I mean, in the case of these four composers, they generally used their own names, though Smythe, for instance, published under E. Smythe in the mm. early years, at least. So sort of disguising her, her gender, that smoothed things over slightly. But I mean... To be absolutely clear, Smythe ended up, Smythe is still the figure we've heard of, not only because of her sort of notoriety and her antics, but because she was the one who absolutely persisted. She really pushed for publication. She really pushed for performances. She used her connections with the kind of rich and famous to actually support performances. She had a real talent for essentially cultivating patronage, which meant that she was able to get her music out there to a greater extent. But even her music was essentially forgotten <laughs> to a large extent by the mid 20th century and so yes I mean in literary terms if you think of Harold Bloom writing about the canon and the fact that in order to have literary works in the canon they have to persist you know the, they have to be still out there and in the case of Broad you know going through cardboard boxes that have been pulled out of somebody's attic somewhere and realizing that there's a false bottom in one of them and actually there's a whole opera hidden under there in manuscript those are the stakes here with some of these women and it is an extraordinary thought you do mention in the piece a little detail but it seemed to be quite telling a naming convention for composers throughout the book and mm. obviously the book is wanting to promote female composers and, and as you said sort of does so brilliantly but this naming convention in your view doesn't sort of help the inequality or the way they're viewed is that right? That is basically what I think yes I think it's a really tricky one this and I think I can see what Broad is trying to do and I should say one of the things that's really moving about this biography is how compassionate Broad is towards her subjects, that she really brings them to life. She's obviously got a huge amount of affection for them each in their own way. And she's really keen to present them as, as rounded human beings, that they're not the kind of female heroes that we might in some ways rather like. They all have faults. She likes to tell us, particularly in the case of both Clark and Howell, they really liked shopping and they spent too much money on dresses they couldn't afford. And, you know, these are not the feminist icons we might want to reach for. On the other hand, I think 
it is really important that in a book that is about music history, that's fighting for women's place within a history of composers specifically, that in a world where we talk about Beethoven and we talk about Mozart or Brahms or Verdi or Britain, we don't use their first names. We just don't. <laughs> we take these figures seriously. And as one of those markers of seriousness is that we use their surnames. And that's a convention of the culture that we live in. And therefore, it struck me as quite jarring, actually, that Broad does use the first names throughout. She explains that one of the reasons she wants to do that is because that's how their friends would have named them. But I confess I'm not actually entirely sure about that, or at least not anyone who wasn't an incredibly close friend. And more to the point, these four women didn't know each other at all in some cases. Smythe and Carwithan, the, the oldest and the youngest, they didn't know each other at all. But even the ones who were in touch briefly, that there's some correspondence between Smythe and Howell and between Smythe and Clark, and actually Smythe invited Clark over for lunch one day and Clark recorded saying that she was a funny cracked old thing by that point but <laughs> Ethel was completely charmed by her and said she was a perfect darling but that's the extent of the personal connection there these women were not friends with each other and I think that's the peculiarity here that we are not talking about a kind of a feminine collective of some sort or a particular community of women they are their individual figures whose lives intertwine and overlap but mostly they don't overlap in a way that any of these figures would have experienced as meaningful. And I think it just means that there are quite a lot of sentences in the book. It is a long book, but there are lots of sentences where this happens, where one of these women is being discussed, or her compositions are being discussed, but alongside the music of Beethoven or Brahms or Mahler, or one of these other titans of music history. And the difference between Mahler and Ethel, for instance, is huge. It doesn't sound like you're going to get a work of mighty genius from Ethel. No, exactly. It really doesn't. And it, it is almost as though Broad has kind of unwittingly amplified the problem that she's actually writing about, that she's she's really bringing it to our attention, but I'm not convinced that that's the way she intended it to happen. It almost suggests that sort of breaking free of those kind of assumptions and unconscious biases, I guess, that have become so enmeshed in the discourse in the critical language just takes such a long time and such extraordinary vigilance and effort. Exactly. And I think we're very much at the bottom of the slope here. There's a huge amount of work still to do. This isn't, of course, the first book dedicated to composers who were also women. It's not the only piece of scholarship, not the only work by a musicologist addressing any of these issues either. On the other hand, it is kind of groundbreaking for being a general reader's book, for having the kind of purchase that a beautifully produced Faber publication has. And I think that is a really important measure of the fact that these are now issues that have been taken seriously, that are assumed to have some kind of public. And that's very, very important. But all the same, these are essentially figures who are unknown, despite the huge quantity of music that's out there. And I found myself repeatedly while reading this book, going to Spotify and actually listening to music that I'd never heard of. And I'd certainly never heard in many, many cases and being just blown away by how beautiful the sound was. And that's in a sense, that's another thing that Broad is trying to do here. She makes it clear she wants you to fall in love with the characters and she wants you to fall in love with the music. And I think certainly the latter works incredibly well. It is a, a real piece of advocacy for the fact that this is music to take seriously. Mm, we should all hop over to Spotify in a minute and go and listen to them. I wanted to ask, does the subtitle deliver on its promise? Did they change the musical? I mean, not that they had to. It's that awful thing of, well, you're a woman composer, so you must, <laughs> you know, break every barrier possible. Did they or, or not really? They were busy doing other things as well. I mean, for my tuppence, I would say, no, I don't think they did. And actually, that's one of the things that's most interesting about this book. The subtitle isn't quite tethered to the content of the book, where actually Broad is really committed to the fact that they didn't have to be the first to be interesting. They didn't have to be groundbreaking to be interesting or to be worth writing about. And that actually seems incredibly important that, yes, there were ways in which Ethel Smythe, for instance, is a kind of obvious trailblazer, particularly with her political commitments, the, the suffrage movement aspect of these things. It's easier to see her as a kind of bra-burning heroine, if you like. Mm. On the other hand, someone like Dorothy Howell or even Doreen Carwithan, whose music was not spiky, it wasn't fashionably modern, certainly wasn't modernist, 
it's harder to place those in any kind of history of an avant-garde. It just doesn't make any sense. And actually, what they contribute, what they challenge us to do, is to think differently about our cultural histories, to acknowledge that a lot of cultural work is being done by people who aren't breaking the mould, people who aren't scrapping everything that's gone before them. But actually, that can still be really important, that there are other ways of being of one's time. And I think, actually, that's one of the most interesting things about this book. And so in that sense, I'd push back slightly against the subtitle and also against Broad's suggestion that they were all trailblazers in their way, which is only true if you really, really emphasise the in their way. But that's what's important. They do their own thing. But now we need to listen to Spotify. We need to listen to Ethel Smythe, Rebecca Clark, Dorothy Hole, and Doreen Carwithin. And we need to say thank you very much to Flora Wilson. Can I sneak in with a really final, 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 very short question? Would we, Lucy and Flora, were Ethel Smythe to have invited us to lunch, knowing what we know now, would we go? <laughs> oh, yes, would we? we would. Because it yes. does sound quite, I, you would have to be on, on, on your toppest of forms, I suppose. I think you? so. I think I'd wear a very large hat. I think you've got to, you know, shock and awe is what you had to lead with with Ethel. Brilliant. Flora, thank you so much for talking to us. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Still to come on the show, the world of the Madagascan pirate kingdoms. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. The anthropologist and activist David Graeber died in 2020, but in the intervening period, not one but two further books by him have appeared, the latest of which has the most intriguing title, Pirate Enlightenment. In it, Graeber revisits his early anthropological studies to explore the world of the Madagascan pirate kingdoms of the 17th century, Bianca Maria Fontana has reviewed the book for the paper this week and joins us now to tell us about it. It's an intriguing proposition, Bianca Maria. Indeed, when I was first offered to review the book, I was slightly puzzled. But then something has happened to the Enlightenment over the last few decades. When I was a student in the last century, Enlightenment was something quite straightforward. It was an intellectual movement from the 18th century. And it was characterized by rationality, individual responsibility, attacks against superstition and against forms of despotic regimes. However, since then, and it was very much located in Europe, mostly in Paris, in fact, since then, the reflection on the Enlightenment has expanded dramatically, I should say so that now the Enlightenment touches on not only on different parts of the world, 
but also on different approaches. So it's no longer rational, but it could also be into spiritism and strange cults. So, you know, it's become really a very mixed bag of everything. So that even the pirates, after my initial shock, were not in the end such an incredible surprise. As you describe it, is it that the Enlightenment has come to be seen as problematically Eurocentric, as essentially sort of excluding other schools of thought? Yes, indeed. I mean, that is, you know, as other aspects of our reflection on the past. It's come under criticism for being Eurocentric, for being too much centred on male contribution, while, of course, women had a major part in that culture, but especially it was too focused on Europe, and even there were accusations, in some cases not unjustified, of racism against uh, some of the major Enlightenment writers. Now, of course, it is quite difficult to take things out of context, and attitudes that were perfectly permissible and progressive in the 18th century are no longer seen as such. But it is certainly true that pirates and Madagascar, since this is the location that Graeber chose, is really an attempt to expand the scope of the Enlightenment. What is slightly puzzling about the exercise is uh, the fact that, first of all, in his case, it isn't clear whether what he's trying to argue in the book is that the Enlightenment wasn't really happening in Europe, but it was happening elsewhere. And in his case, the claim is that there were in Madagascar supposedly democratic communities that broke conventional sort of uh, behaviours of of the time and conventional political practices. So what is unclear to me is whether Graeber is criticising the Enlightenment, saying that it never was such, but that the Enlightenment really occurred elsewhere, or whether in fact he's defending the Enlightenment by showing that it was richer and wider than people believed before. Yes, I mean, in the piece, you put him in context to sort of, you know, try to figure exactly that thing out. Just tell us a little bit about him and his work. I mean, his books include Debt, The First 5,000 Years, Bullshit Jobs, which gives you a kind of clue as to his thinking. He was a leading light in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Just tell us a little bit about his work and how we should approach this book. So this was the great difficulty I had, because as I discovered, I mean, when I picked up the book, I had, of course, heard of Graeber, but I I had not really realized to what extent my young colleagues, for example, who are economists, most of them, were fascinated by his work, so that he had become a kind of fashionable guru Mm. of a new trend in thinking about such issues in, in the past. Obviously, he was a very distinctive, very eccentric personality who started off his career as an academic in American academia. He was an anthropologist. Then, for reasons that are not very clear, I mean, there's always a slight touch of paranoia in his writing so that, you know, he may have been persecuted by the academic authorities or maybe not. It's not clear. Anyway, he decided to abandon that side of his career He moved to Europe, to London, and then started writing these books that were extremely popular. And at the same time, he took up this new kind of attitude of sort of anarchist uh, contester of capitalist order, which culminated in the Occupy Wall Street movement. What I found slightly controversial in his presentation is that he first criticized, I mean, it may be a generational problem, but he begins by criticizing people who marched against the Vietnam War in the 60s. And then he defends his own movement. And to me, it doesn't seem that there was a great difference between occupying a park near Wall Street and marching against the Vietnam War in the streets of Washington. It seems to me that these were just forms of perfectly legitimate, understandable protest. But it doesn't seem to me that the Occupy Wall Street movement had a kind of uh, superior impact on, shall we say, modern capitalism. But anyway, his books, uh, he, he wrote a big book on the debt as a phenomenon in Western societies over the last couple of centuries. 
And it is clearly a modern, contemporary expression of a new anti-capitalist ideology, which of course cannot any longer rest on traditional Marxist categories. And so it's searching for new outcomes, new possibilities. It's very interesting, just on a, a sort of broader note, even, and you know, how many times you must have thought about this in your work into the history of, of political thought, the way that different strains of political activists do sometimes take one form of protest is legitimate and the other isn't. I mean, it's, it's a sort of constant argument that we see being played out all the time, isn't it? Yes, of course. I suppose that each generation likes to invent uh, some new form of uh, protest, some new form. I mean, I belong to the generation of uh, more traditional, conventional demonstrations uh, with police and trade unions and such. Now, things are much more fluid. And I can see that the difficulty for anyone today who feels strongly against economic inequality, against uh, rights not being respected, against the environment not being sufficiently taken into account, find it very difficult to have a kind of approach that should prove effective because traditional parties are no longer considered. The trade unions are seen as very sectorial defenders of very specific interests. And what struck me about the Graeber book is that he really, in the end, there is always this fantasy that there should be a better word somewhere else, sometime else. And it struck me because in the end, it seems to me that his approach rejoins a lot that I use. I mean, I, I'm an 18th century historian. I found in 18th century writers who were also uneasy about their own word and were sort of hoping that somewhere else, in some other place, in some other context, there may be better societies, purer, more just, more democratic, uh, more egalitarian, and so on. Yes, and this is what really is the subject of this book, isn't it? And it's fascinating to me the way that you describe it. He was interested in writing about divine right kingship, about the belief that societies would be governed, would be exclusively run really by people whose legitimacy to govern was conferred by God, by divine right. And he was interested in that and and at the same time he was interested in the pirate settlements. But then essentially he put aside the divine right studies because the pirates just became more and more fascinating to him, didn't they? Yes, I think from what he says, obviously a poor man is dead, so he can't argue for himself. The idea was uh, to have a border project. And I imagine, I mean, it's, it's a very old argument in the history of political thought that at the origin of each kingdom, at the origin of the power of the various dynasties in the different countries, there is in fact some act of violence of, we could say piracy, but if you prefer robbery or banditism, that has allowed some particular law to emerge and seize power. And it's not a new argument. It's an argument that has always been set against the idea that kings were invested by God of their power. So you find this in writings rather early on, because if one actually looks at the history of the various kingdoms, you can see people assassinating their relatives, uh, uh, massacring other populations and so on in order to establish a power and then investing this power with a kind of you know divine aura and all sorts of uh, symbolic and ritual elements. The question about the pirates is obviously Graeber chose them because he had a good knowledge of those settlements in Madagascar. What I found striking being myself a historian is that he would embark in this uh, while admitting at the same time that we virtually know nothing at all about this or very little. He says that 90% of the evidence is missing. This is partly because obviously Pirates settling on the coast of Madagascar in order to escape capture and to carry on their raids were not inclined to leave many written documents of their activities. And of course, their interaction, for example, with the native population of Madagascar is hardly an object of, you know, that can be uh, recorded or observed. 
But it's also true that at the same time, since the, the end of the 17th century, as you mentioned before, there was a kind of legend that was built around these pirate settlements. And we know that in the 18th century, there are lots, there's lots of fiction which is produced, but there's also lots of narratives, the status of which we can't quite test because they presented as memoirs of travelers, of narratives of people who were themselves pirates. I mean, it, it, I can see that Graeber was sucked into the fascination of this material. So he's working really in an area where, as you say, there's very little that is concretely recorded. So I guess that there's a lot that you can then project onto that or wonder about or, or sort of speculate about. The things that I gather we do know is that these settlements were, we know that Madagascar was near to the trading routes, but outside the orbit of the East India Company and the Royal African Company. So there was a sort of marginal space where other ways of controlling power, of accreting wealth and material were, were possible, weren't they? Yes, obviously, the position of pirates is, as you will know, very ambiguous, because on the one hand, they're obviously outlaws, and the crews were made of outlaws who couldn't just go back to where they came from because they had taken part in mutinies and, and such sort of, of stuff. On the other hand, on occasion, since uh, already the 16th century, pirates would also serve this or that trading company or this or that monarch. I mean, think of uh, Elizabeth I and her pirate. Just you know, a performing action that a regular army could not perform or a regular navy could not perform. But anyway, they were always on the margin. And what really interests Graeber is the fact that by settling in Madagascar, they had to come into some sort of interaction with native population there, which did exist as far as, as we know. There were possibly multiple ethnic groups living in Madagascar, weren't there? Indeed, because there's both an original, I'm following obviously his account, I'm, I'm no expert on, on Madagascar, but as he explained, there's both a native population. And then there are immigrants from Muslim countries that obviously carry an entirely different cultural background. And the question is that Graeber imagines that this interaction with different population might have led to democratic communities, so that there were pirate kings, but there were also these imagined society of libertalia. And the problem is we do know that this settlement existed. We have absolutely no idea of how they function, how the different population interacted. Of course, his fantasy is also that these native communities would not be dominated by patriarchy like Western societies. And at some point in the text, it comes out with a king, a pirate king, who is in fact the son of a pirate and of a Madagashi queen. So, you know, that there is this kind of interaction with different words, but they're all characterized by the fact that they are either outlaw or marginal or outside anyway, Western civilization. What emerges, I think, in your piece and your reading of his book is that this very, very suggestive idea of the Republic of Libertalia does become this space on which one can project all sorts of ideas of perhaps what one would like to have seen. And he does see it, as you explain, as potentially a radical form of democracy. Is that correct? Yes, that's what I, uh, maybe I'm projecting on him, a sort of psychological interpretations. But it seems to me that without any real historical evidence, he imagines this kind of society that, in his view, would indeed realize the ideals of a form of non-authoritarian, egalitarian democracy. What struck me from what I know about Enlightenment literature is that, or 18th century literature in general, is that actually he has something in common with Enlightenment writers, in fact, very much in common, because although their political positions were different from his own, like him, they used constantly primitive societies. I put the primitive into quotes. 
in order to reflect on their own. And if you read major authors like Montaigne, like Rousseau, like Voltaire, in the end, you don't really know where they are talking about some real evidence. Of course, they read travelers' accounts and missionaries' accounts of different exploration that were made in South America, for example, or whether, in fact, they reflecting, they inventing a primitive society, an original society, to explain why their own developed as it did. And if you take major political theories like uh, Locke or Hobbes, they all start off with imagining, you know, like in the Bible, the first couple and then the first tribe and so on, and trying to see how you get from there to a kingdom. And I think that there is a lot of ambiguity in Enlightenment writings in relation to that, because you never know whether this is just philosophical speculation, ethnic, ethnographical observation, or history. And in a way that writers uh, far more famous than the pirate kings entertain this ambiguity. And so, uh, you know, the Rousseau's fascination, for example, with primitive societies or description that Michel de Montaigne in the 16th century gives of supposed cannibals living in, in Brazil, all carry this kind of double element. You know, on the one hand, the desire to uh, reflect seriously on the origins of political society and on the other, the notion that they can be set against our own to show how Western society is unjust, unequal, cruel, and so on. I don't know whether this gives you an idea of what... Uh... Well, there's a very interesting word that you latch onto and analyse in the piece, which is that Graeber and some of these other thinkers that you're talking about were in pursuit of a transgressive society. They wanted something that they could set in opposition to the societies with which they were familiar and about which they had deep-rooted criticisms. But of course, as you say, again, that transgression, that idea of transgressiveness realised in a society was to an extent a fantasy. Well, when Rousseau published this, one of these very famous texts, which is his discourse on the progress of the arts and sciences, in which precisely he explains how the progress of civilization is accompanied by a form of degeneration of moral values. So, you know, he anticipates lots of subsequent arguments about capitalism promoting material welfare at the expense of moral. Excellence. When he first published his text, Voltaire, who was a nasty old man and very critical, uh, wrote to him saying, well, when one reads you, monsieur, one doesn't know whether what you want is just for us to go back to the woods and climb on trees. Voltaire's point being that as one can't unmake the development of modern civilization, you can use this critical instrument, but you can't actually imagine that someday you will wake up and have a kind of tabula rasa about everything that is existing. I've always thought that comment by Voltaire, however nasty, extremely telling in this respect, because it shows the difficulty. I'll give you another example. Even further back in history, in the 16th century, the end of the 16th century, Montaigne, who's a French magistrate living in, in Bordeaux, in his essays, describes how some, again, into bracket, cannibals, meaning natives from Brazil, have been taken to France to meet the king. Now, what really happened was that some native from Brazil were indeed taken off. They were either slaves or they were part of some sort of missionary expedition and so on. They were taken to France and shown to the king, you know, as one would show a zoological specimen. And Montaigne imagines in his essay that he's actually discussing with these people, which obviously is completely unrealistic, and the cannibals point out to him a number of things about French society which are completely absurd, like the fact that there are people starving at the doors of people who are very rich and who have houses filled with goods and food and so on. And the cannibal asks, well, why don't they just take what the others have? 
And then Montaigne very sort of ironically concludes, of course, these people are just savages. They don't even wear trousers. I don't know whether this makes the point a bit clearer. Well, it's Eurocentric. It's certainly white-centric. And that is sort of written in that history, isn't it? And in the piece, Bianca Maria, you do talk about the revival of a rather conventional view of the Enlightenment, don't you? And especially in the wake of the attacks in France, the Charlie Hebdo massacre in 2015 and the Bataclan. I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit about that. Yes, it is really possibly for the time being more a French phenomenon than a broader one. But it is true that as the attacks in, I mean, the terrorist attack massacres in Paris against the editors of the Charlie Hebdo and then against the public of the Bataclan were motivated by the fact that they published caricatures of Mohammed in, in a satirical paper, there has been a tendency to see again the Enlightenment as what conventional, if I can call him that, French thinkers like Voltaire initially thought it should be. Uh, that is to say, a movement that was universal for individual freedom and against uh, traditional religious beliefs. And following those terrorist attempts, a teacher called Samuel Paty was assassinated in his school in France by a Chechenian terrorist because he had not shown, but actually discussed with his students the famous caricatures against Mohammed. And there was a commemoration of these men at the Sorbonne. And on the occasion, President Macron concluded his speech saying, in France, the lights, he meant les lumières in the classic sense of the term, will never be extinguished. And since then, the theme of France being once again at the heart of a movement for universal individual freedom in the kind of perhaps more traditional liberal sense is very strong. Bianca Maria, that was just so interesting. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. And uh, the book is out. I've seen it in the bookshop. So let's see what readers will make of it. Thank you, Alex. have time for this week our thanks go to flora wilson and bianca maria fontana thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy charlotte and from me goodbye <laughs>